Reading your Bible, praying, finding time to be alone with God does not make you more acceptable to God, nor do those practices change you. Rather, it is where change happens, as we come to meet with our Father and connect with His heart. Our teacher on this important subject is author and speaker Preston Gillum of Fort Worth, Texas, when he spoke at the Christ's Life Conference hosted by Crossways to Life. May Father use this message to deepen your walk with Him. Good evening. Thank you for being here this evening. I'm excited about our topic tonight. We're going to talk about a personal God. You know, when I think about God, he has uh, quite an image problem. In fact, he's uh, a marketing nightmare, if you would. Uh, politics are big, big topic in Canada. Uh, I believe you've got an election ne- next week, and of course, politics are a big item right now in the United States as well. We've got a, an election coming up in about a month. If God was, uh, or as God is, a public figure, I think he kind of needs a spin master like these politicians have um, to help him out a little bit. You know, when I look at the kinds of things that are recorded about God in uh, in his book here, There are things about him that I think contribute mightily to this image problem. There is the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 of um, two guys, Uzzah and Ahio, and they are moving the Ark of the Covenant, the, the box that God lived in. They're moving that from one location to another, and 2 Samuel 6 records how this is all coming down and uh, David the king is involved in the procession of moving the ark and everything and as the uh, wagon and the oxen and so on approach a particular threshing floor, the oxen either spook or trip or something and the cart begins to tip a little bit and Uzzah reaches up and touches the ark of God which had he watched uh, uh, Harrison Ford in Indi- you know, the Indiana Jones movies, he would have known he shouldn't have done that. But anyway, he reaches up to steady the ark and uh, to keep it from falling. And when he does, God uh, is angry with him because of his irreverence in touching the ark. And right then and there, God kills him on the spot. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel 6 that Uzzah died on the threshing floor beside the ark of God. I mean, this guy is only trying to keep God uh, from falling off the cart onto the ground. I mean, he's trying to help God out, if you will. And God, in his uh, petty way, it would seem, uh, smoked this guy, killed him, because of his irreverence. There is the story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 about Samuel and Saul, the first king of Israel. And Samuel goes to Saul and he tells him that God wants him to go to a people called the Amalekites. They were the descendants of Amalek, and Amalek and his descendants had given Israel fits uh, ever since they had come out of Egypt. So Samuel goes and tells Saul that he wants 
him to get the army together and he wants him to go down and he wants him to, quote, utterly destroy the Amalekites. The way that uh, the scripture puts it, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. You know, uh, I can understand why God would be angry, but to be so petulant as to say, I want you to go and I want you to utterly destroy not only this people, but I want you to utter, utterly destroy their cows and their oxen, the woman, the women, the children. I want you to kill them. I want you to kill the horse that they rode into town on. Don't spare anybody. And um, Saul then goes and there's uh, a recounting in in 1 Samuel of how that Saul does go and he kills a bunch of folks, but he does not kill the king, a guy named Agag. And furthermore, then, the people save back from the uh, cattle and the sheep, the prized animals. And when they do this, then God comes to Samuel again and he says, I regret that I have made Saul king over Israel. Samuel says, well, how come? He says, well, because I told him I wanted him to go and to utterly destroy these people, and he's not done it. And so Samuel, it says, grieves over Saul all night long in prayer. But then he goes to Saul, um, chases him down, finds him. Saul comes to him and declares, I was obedient. I did what God told me to do. I've killed Amalek. I've utterly destroyed uh, him. And there's that famous verse then that we've all heard quoted probably where Samuel says, if you have done what God asked you to do, then why is it that I hear this bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen in my ears? Oh, well, the people saved back the best of those animals, and we are going to make a sacrifice to God with them. But God wasn't having anything to do with that sacrifice. As a matter of fact, he said uh, through Samuel to Saul, I regret that I have made you king. Um, so Saul makes this one mistake, or one sin, however you want to call it. And God, again, is so petulant as to say, I'm sorry I made you king, and I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you. And that's exactly what he did. He plays favorites. You know, there's a story of Jacob and Esau, and there's that verse of Scripture in Romans chapter 9. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau, I hated. In order to keep the alliteration going, there's a big word, pedantic. It means that you're overly concerned with minute details. I mean, God is really fairly narrow-minded if you think about it. I mean, there's the verse of Scripture in John 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. And he goes to the trouble when he speaks to place a definite article in front of each of these characteristics and separate each of the characteristic phrases with a conjunction. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. In other words, he's speaking with great definition about who he is, and he makes it very clear there is no other truth, there is no other way, there is no other life than me. And you're not going to get to God unless you come via me. You know, God positions himself in the scriptures in intimidating kinds of ways. I mean, he himself is intimidating. He's holy, the Bible tells us. Who else do you know that's holy? Who else do you know that is high and lifted up, who speaks of himself as saying that the heavens are his throne and that the earth is his footstool? Who else do you know who would come to you with the intimidating statement that says, I hold your life in my hands? He's wealthy beyond comprehension. So wealthy as a matter of fact that he is somewhat removed and insulated from us. He says, all things are mine. Everything that was made belongs to me. There's a very wealthy family that lives in Fort Worth, where I live. They make the Forbes richest people in the world's list every year and so on. Well, they built a... um, uh, an amazing, uh, you can't call it a house, and it's bigger than a mansion. It's not quite a castle, I suppose. But it has amazing gardens uh, like it are at Versailles and so on. You look at it at Google Earth, and it's just an amazing deal to look at, at where these people live and what they've created. And, and, of course, they're legendary in our area. They're legendary the world over, I suppose. And um, so they built this place, uh, and they built a wall all along their property, and it was as tall as the city code would allow them to make the wall. And um, as they built the wall and so on, when they looked across the street, they realized that there were two houses across the street that were both two-story houses, and they could see the second story of those homes, and therefore whoever was in the second story of those homes could see over their wall. And so they went and bought the two houses and uh, destroyed them and made that area then into a park so that there wouldn't ever be any more homes built there. And But much to their consternation, as the story goes, they discovered that there were delivery trucks and so on that would go down the street in front of their house, and those trucks were tall enough and the wall was short enough that the trucks could, you know, they could see the tops of the trucks over the wall. And so they went to the city and they asked for a variance to tear down their wall and build a taller wall. And the city said, no, um, we're not going to give you a variance to build a taller wall. Well, now then, uh, if you're this family, you've got a problem because you have this amazing home that you have built with these incredible grounds and so on, but you can see these trucks as they go past your wall and the city won't let you build a taller wall. What are you going to do? Well, they went to the city 
And they said, you know, we have noticed that the three blocks of street that are uh, by our house are looking pretty shabby. What we would like to do is out of the magnitude of our heart and the depth of our appreciation for the city and the area in which we live, we would like to offer to repave the street in front of our home. Well, that's great. That's however many million dollars less that the city will have to come up with to do this. Feel free. We're honored for the gift and so on. And so they set about with the contractors and so on to rebuild this particular portion of the street. And it just so happened that in the course of the construction, the street got lowered by three feet. I don't think that way. Uh, I really don't. I doubt you do either. Uh, but you are not a billionaire either. Uh, you don't have that kind of money to solve problems like that. It takes you have to. It causes your brain to bend a little bit to even think about resolving a problem like these people had. In fact, I wouldn't be concerned about the problem to begin with, but they were. God is a lot like those rich people. Uh, money is simply of no concern to him. He has more money than he could ever spend. There's all these things that come out periodically about how much money Bill Gates has. And I remember one time they were trying to convey, and I don't remember what his worth was at the time. He was, you know, $46 billion or something. And they were trying to convey how much money that is. And the thing I remember was that if uh, Mr. Gates were to be walking down the street and see a $100 bill on the ground and he were to stop and pick up the $100 bill and put it in his pocket, he would have wasted more money uh, than he saved by reaching down to pick up the $100 bill. I don't think in those kinds of terms. And yet, God says that the very wealth of a billionaire is nothing, that he owns everything. How do you relate to him? I mean, we have a person who is, uh, you know, the stories about him convey that he can be petty and, and petulant, that he... He plays favorites a little bit, that he's pedantic, that he is intimidating, that he is fabulously wealthy. And then we gather and we say to one another, we're supposed to get close to God. We're supposed to love God. He's supposed to be approachable to us. We're supposed to be able to cozy up to him in a sense. You're kidding me. How? With a reputation like that? But put yourself in God's place for just a minute. You know, years ago, there was a quarterback who played for the Dallas Cowboys, a guy named Troy Aikman. And um, Troy is, uh, I think, about six foot four or so, blonde hair, blue eyes, movie star handsome, about 220 pounds. I mean, he looks like a Greek god, uh, you know, in, the, in his physical appearance. And... Anyway, one morning I was listening to the radio, and I live right next door in a town called Fort Worth. And Anyway, I was listening to the radio, and apparently at, at that point in time, Troy had decided that he was going to build a house out north of, of our area a little ways. And somebody was privy to the, to the house plans, and as they were talking about this on the radio and so on, they were talking about the square footage of the house and so on. And then they mentioned that there was going to be a five-lane bowling alley that was going to be part of Troy's house. 
And the disc jockeys then on the radio station began to just give Troy down the river because he was putting this bowling alley into his house that he was building out in South Lake. And as I listened to that, I thought, well, you know, you, you people don't get it. You're missing the point. There is no way that Troy could go bowl and be left alone anywhere in the world. I mean, he was, at the time, he was one of the most famous faces in the world. There's no way he could go bowl. Everybody would be coming up and asking for interviews and, and that sort of thing. So if you're Troy, what are you going to do? Well, you got plenty of money, and so you're going to put in a five-lane bowling alley in your house so that you can go bowl and be left alone. God's kind of like that in a way. Um, why do we love God? After all, why? I mean, if if you had the opportunity to be a friend to Troy Aikman, the question would constantly be in the back of Troy's mind, why are you my friend? Are you my friend so that you can come over and bowl on my bowling alley? Or are you my friend because you like me? I've discovered with the people whom I know that have a lot of money, that they never really know why people are their friends. I think God's similar. Why are we his friends? Why do we like him? Why do we want to be on his team? Is it so that we can have our sins forgiven and get to go to heaven when we die? Is it so that we can escape hell? Is it so that we'll have somebody who's kind of a whole card that we can pray to and say, Oh God, I got a bad report from the, from the doctor. I need you to heal me. Or, Oh God, my son, he's taken a left turn in life. Would you please redirect him back onto the straight and narrow path? Why do we want to have a relationship with God? Now, of course, God knows all things. And so he knows the answer to that question. But nevertheless, putting myself in his shoes, I sometimes wonder, how does he feel about me being his friend? Am I honest in that friendship with him? So if you're God, what are you going to do to ease your identity problem? What are you going to do to solve this marketing crisis that you've got? What are you going to do? Are you going to hire a spin master like the politicians do? What are you going to do? Are you going to throw away your wealth? What are you going to do to become approachable? Well, one of the things he did was he invented Christmas. I think God must have sat down at some point and scratched his chin and said, you know what? I have got to come up with a plan that will ease the tension that these people feel when they get around me. My reputation is one of smoking people when they don't do right. My reputation is of having thoughts and ideas and standards that they don't get. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So what can I do? to start off on another foot. i tell you what I'll do. I will go there 
I will go there. But I will go as a baby. These people, they're crazy about babies. They make fools of themselves. Anytime there's a baby around, they talk in baby talk. They coo and they, they with their lips and so on when they're around a baby. And they, all of their, all of their guard is let down anytime there's a baby around and, and they, they actually kind of tussle with one another for the opportunity just to hold the baby. So I'll go as a baby. Uh, I'll go as an illegitimate baby to an unwed mother who gives birth to me in a barn in a feeding trough and I will announce my birth to reprobates, sinners, criminals, and the lowest of the low in society. That's a good plan. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what he did. And that's Christmas. It's incredulous, isn't it? It's crazy. Why would God do that? I think it is indicative of his determination to be gracious. It is indicative of his determination to share his heart. And his heart is, I want to be accessible. I want you to come to me. I'm leaning toward you. Out over the ramparts of heaven to the point that I fall over the edge and I come to where you are. And I make myself completely vulnerable to you. I come as a baby born to the lowest of the low with no pretense so that you will have no excuse whatsoever to come to me. No terms are to be stated. And then as he grew and uh, began to live his life in the person of Christ, he hung out, he hung out with gluttons and drunkards and tax collectors. Euripides says a man is known by the company that he keeps, and that's how Jesus was known. As a man who hangs out with tax gatherers and sinners, he was known as a glutton and a drunkard. And then he came up with a business plan for what he wanted to accomplish in the world. And he placed his hopes and his dreams in the hands of flawed men and women. The main guy on his team was Peter, whom he called a rock, when in reality he was nothing more than a sandpile. What was he thinking? What was he thinking? James and John, his two right-hand guys, he called them sons of thunder. But every time they wanted something, they asked their mother to go and intercede for them. What was he thinking? Saul, who became Paul, a Pharisee, a murderer of his people. Uh, Brennan Manning refers to him as uh, the modern-day Madeline Murray O'Hare, the atheists of atheists in a sense, the hater of everything that God stood for. And he chooses that man to pen the bulk of the New Testament.
What's he thinking? Thomas, known for his doubting, not for his courage and vision. I wouldn't want to have any one of these people on my staff. And yet God chose not only to put them on the staff of his son, but he chose them then to carry forward the message of his heart and life. Why? I believe so that he could say, hey, I will live through you. I will engage you at any level. I will engage you and interact with you at any place. I don't care how low it is or how high it is. Uh, There is no standard that is too high or too low or too wide, too liberal, too conservative. But what I will not make some effort to penetrate that at whatever cost in order to convey to you that I want to talk to you. I want to communicate to you. He reaches out to the downtrodden, to the swindlers and to the failed of the world. The woman who was caught in adultery. In the first place, they set a trap for Jesus. A trap that he acknowledged and yet he waded into the middle of it. This woman is brought to him, no doubt stripped naked down to her waist. She's put at his feet. Her crime is brought before him. Clearly by law, she should be stoned. And you know the story. He goes and speaks privately to the Samaritan woman at the well. As one who spent most of his days working in a nonprofit, one of the things that um, I am constantly aware of is that I must never be seen in private with a woman that is not my wife for fear of wagging tongues. And yet, what did Jesus do? He went and met with not only a woman, but a foreign woman, a despicable woman that was hated by the Jews, and a woman of ill repute in private. And there he engaged her in discussion and reached out and touched her soul. Zacchaeus, a little man with a big ego and a lot of money that he had gotten by sticking it to people. And he says, hey, I want to go eat with you. Sometimes I want to say, what about your reputation? Don't you care what people think about you? I was taught that I'm not supposed to hang out with people like that. And yet, you seem to give no thought of reputation. And indeed, he didn't. The scriptures say he made himself of no reputation, but he emptied himself. Why? So that there would be no impediment for us to come to him, just as he is and just as we are. And he reaches out to us, the flawed, the broken, the ruined, the arrogant, the self-righteous, the self-sufficient, and the self-made. We who understand, we say, our new identity in Christ but we get so focused on overcoming the flesh that we miss turning our attention to him who has remade us. We get hung up on the theology of our teaching and miss him. 
we who understand our new identity, but bring our best to him, expecting that he will sanctify that rather than selling, celebrating the fact that we are the sanctified because of his work in our lives. He describes himself using metaphors so that we can understand. And they're metaphors that he puts each of us in touch with. He calls himself a friend. I've got a friend. His name's Lamar. He's a good friend. Um, I needed to ferry a car from Fort Worth, Texas to Springfield, Missouri a few months ago. That's 565 miles, so what's that, 800 kilometers, I guess? Something like that. Uh, Lamar volunteered without me asking to follow me up there. Paid $4 a gallon gas the whole way. He followed me up there and then carried me home just so that we could spend time together. And we hung out in the car and we talked and we listened and we played music on the stereo, and we sang along, and we told stories. We're friends. We're close friends. Uh, We take airplane trips together. We hang out some. Our wives get together. Um, We sit around and talk on his back porch and on my back patio because we're friends. That's what friends do. And God said, hey, I'm going to give you a friend. And then I want you to understand that there's a verse of Scripture that says, I am the friend who sticks closer than a brother. I'm going to call myself a friend and give you friends so that you'll understand what I mean when I say I'm like a friend to you. He says, uh, I'm a husband. I'm a spouse. And most of us have one of those. And if we don't have one, we've at least been exposed to one. We know what it means to be married to someone. We know what it means to live with someone. When God says, um, I am married to you and you're married to me, I say, oh, okay, I know something about that because of this ring. I'm, I'm married to Diane. And so, Diane, I mean, that's that person that, that I eat dinner with every night. And that's that person that I reach over and I touch first thing in the morning. And that's that person who goes with me and sometimes talks and sometimes doesn't talk. And it's the person that I go out and help do little things. And she's a teacher and I help her hang stuff at the first of the year on the walls and and so on. And we talk about important things and we talk about nothing. And we sit on the patio together and and watch. I mean, our thing, you're going to think this is crazy. We watch the rat run across the telephone wire over our backyard and we find great joy in that. And that's part of what it means to be married. And so when God says, you're married to me and I'm married to you, I'm like a husband to you. You're like a wife to me. I can say, okay, I've got one of those. I I can understand sort of what you're saying to me. And you've got to be kidding me. This woman is so close to me. 
And you're saying that you're that close to me? He says, I'm like a brother to you. I was talking with God one night when I was out on my walk and, and he, uh, I said to, uh, I actually said to the Lord Jesus, I said, uh, dear older brother, I don't fully understand who you are. Tell me about yourself. And he said to me in my mind, he said, uh, well, I'm like a brother. And I said, well, you know what? I've, I've got, I've got a couple of brothers, but you know, one is eight years younger than me and one is 12 years younger than me. And in a way, I'm kind of like an only child in my house. So I got these two people running around on the earth that are brothers, but I'm not really that connected. And he said, no, I understand. But think about Randy, another one of my buddies, who is like a brother to me. In fact, I had a brother who died, and Randy is his exact same age. And he says, I'm like a brother, and when you think about brother, think about Randy. Oh, and so I began to think about Randy. We ride bikes together. We talk about life together. Uh, we meet downtown after work for a drink. We go camping together. Um, we argue. He's got full right to uh, speak into my life about things that are important to me. He calls my hand on stuff. Uh, I go to him for counsel. Um, we're, we're connected like family. And God says, it's like that. It's like that. I'm like a brother. I'm like a father, the scripture says. And there is that amazing verse in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, that God has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba is the uh, word that a small child uses today in Israel when he's referring to his dad. It's what we would call out daddy. One of my buddies, a former board member named George, was over in Israel one time and he was on public transportation, a bus. And he was uh, sitting on this bus and there was a Jewish man in the uh, seat across from him, had a, had his big beard and everything, and had about a, uh, a two or three year old little boy sitting on his lap. And the little boy was sitting there, and Dad had his arms around the little boy and so on. All of a sudden, the little kid squirmed loose, and he turned around and got in his daddy's face. And George said that little kid grabbed hold of his dad's beard like this and pulled his dad's face close to him and said, Abba, Abba, Abba. I'm like a father to you. I'm like a lover. And of course I think of Diane and what it means to be her lover. But then I also think of my buddy Kevin who looks at me very often when we're together. He lives in the state of Colorado. 
And when we're together, he'll look at me often and he'll say, Press Gillum, I love you. You're such a great friend. He loves my soul. He loves who I am. And our response? Well, we put big labels on God. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, self-existent, immutable, preeminent, preeminent, incomprehensible. And we're here this week to try to get to know God who is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, self-existent, immutable, preeminent, incomprehensible, and live with him on a daily basis. God goes to great lengths to make himself approachable, to make himself available and accessible. And then we come along and we apply all these big names to him and make him unapproachable, unavailable, and inaccessible to ourselves. God wants to be called Father, but in our own projection of discomfort and dis-ease with calling him Father, we insist upon calling him by names that we are more comfortable with rather than what he requests he be called. Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, O Lord, All of those things are true, aren't they? All of those big words are true of God. But when we go to God and we attach those big words, and when we go to God and we require of Him that He tolerate us, addressing Him in a way that is comfortable to us, we in essence are saying to Him, I hear what you say to me when you say that you want to be called Father when you want to be called Abba. But because I'm uncomfortable with that, I will do what I believe is best in our relationship rather than taking you at your word. And in so doing, we make God distant and unapproachable when he has gone to such great lengths to say, I want to be approachable. I want to lean in. I want to pull you close. Whisper in your ear and kiss you on the head like we talked about last night as God's blessing of us. And because we insist upon thinking of God in our own terms, rather than taking God as at his word, God becomes mysterious to us. And the reality of life begins to get in our way. And before we know it, life is bigger than the God that we understand. And we know more about life than we know about God because God is unknowable and he is not meaningful to the issues and the stresses that we live with. I found myself in that condition. And I, uh, I went out one afternoon, uh, one morning actually, to have a discussion with God about that very thing. And that's where I want us to uh, pick up when we come back after our break. And I will tell you about that discussion with God and how for me, God began to speak in ways out of his word that helped him become a personal God as opposed to that God that was distant 
and unapproachable because of all of the presuppositions that I had of him. So, Father, I pray that you'd keep these things fresh in our minds while we take a break and that when we come back, you will have us locked and loaded for what you want to say to us next. In the name of Jesus, amen. This message was recorded at the Christ is Life Conference hosted by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know God deeper and disciple Christians on their journey to life and freedom that they may love others from their new pure heart by faith in Jesus Christ living through them as a result of their union with Christ at the cross. For more information, upcoming events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.